We're continuing our study through the book of Genesis, and we're still in chapter 1, and, and we will be for another week, uh, Lord, Lord willing, one more week, not multiple weeks, but um, we're, we're doing something a little different today, and, and so this is going to be a little more topical, more of a topical message, and I'll explain that in a moment, but I want to I begin, I want to ask the question, we've been walking through this uh, through these verses, and we walked through most of chapter one last week, and, and I just asked the question: What are we reading when we read these opening words of the Bible? What is it that we're reading? What kind of writing is Genesis one? Uh, we, we've talked a lot about why this is here and the purpose of Genesis and the the, the, con, the context in which Moses wrote this under the Spirit's inspiration. But but what does it mean? Uh, we've, we've bumped into this question already, but I want to explore that more today. Is, is this some kind of science manual that's designed to tell us everything about the origins of the universe? Or is it simply religious poetry? Is it history? Or is it just literary? literary, uh, literary? Is it just a well-crafted story or some kind of myth? Now before we answer those questions, there's a more fundamental question we have to ask and, and we need to consider it, and it's this, is who determines the meaning? Who controls meaning? Who is it? As we walk through the book of Genesis, who decides that the answer to that question, what the meaning of the text is? Is it you and me? Is it, is it the reader who decides what it means? I mean, we've probably been in, in different groups at, at times where... Uh, I, I, this is certainly part of my kind of upbringing and have some leader will say, well, what does this passage mean to you? And one person says, well, to me this means such and such. And, well, I disagree. I think to me this means this. And, and so we kind of share what it means. Is that it? it? Or is meaning determined by the most educated and credentialed biblical scholar of our day or of some golden era of a previous generation? Is that, is that who determines meaning? Is, is, it, is meaning determined by the, the church, capital C? Because there's uh, a podium and a mic, does that mean that I determine the meaning or the church determines the meaning of the text? Is it the notes at the bottom of your study Bibles that you have open right now that are checking everything that I say against? Uh, is that what determines the meaning? And so whoever your favorite... Um, you know, preacher that's written a study Bible, that's, that's, the, that's the standard. It's those notes at the bottom of the page. Is that who determines meaning? Is it Richard Dawkins who determines meaning when we come to Genesis? Or Christopher Hitchens? I mean, who, who determines the meaning? Who controls what this passage means? When we read, look at there at the beginning again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And He goes on and, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And 
on and on. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And God said, let the earth, let the, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let their water swarm and, uh, with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the heaven across the expanse of the heavens. I mean, so, so over and over in this chapter, we saw this last week, God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. It was good. It was good. It was good. Evening, morning, evening, morning, day one, day two, day three, day four, and so on. And you get to, 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 to the sixth day, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created him. Who controls what that means? That's the question. This is such a critical question to ask and answer. And I, I know it may seem kind of pedantic, but don't think of it in the, that way. I, I want to suggest to you that the author actually determines what that means. I'm not saying that if you agree with that statement, okay, God the author determines the meaning, that we'll all just... We'll never disagree again on any passage of Scripture, including Genesis 1, and we'll all just hold hands and everything will be awesome, and we'll just agree all the time. That's not what I'm saying, but this, this has to be a core conviction that we share together. That God, the author, determines the meaning. Affirming that at least gives us some, some protective guardrails as we interpret Scripture particular passages like this if we it frees us to trust the plain meaning of God's revelation in the face of of pressures and 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 derision from you know modern science and philosophy so we can trust the simple meaning and also it keeps us from from hijacking hijacking the text and and making it some kind of entertaining sideshow to answer all of our silly questions about Adam's belly button and what not. And, and there's all these kinds of questions, but we can make it that. But, but, but it gives us these guardrails. Genesis 1, listen, Genesis 1 is the authoritative and inspired account of creation. What we have in these opening two chapters of the Bible is special revelation from God. God Himself revealing to us in the pages of Scripture what He did in the beginning. This is not myth, it's not religious fiction, it's divine revelation. And so God is the determiner of meaning. Genesis 1.1, right out of the gates, Moses doesn't say. Now I know that there are different theological perspectives in the ancient Near East about origins, and there are Canaanite perspectives, and there are uh, Chaldean perspectives, and Ammonite perspectives, and on and on, and we need to respect all the religious views but we, this is going to be our perspective on the origins. He doesn't say that. No, he just says, listen, here's the truth. God gave it to me. In the beginning, God alone created the heavens and the earth. It's a simple declaration. No apologies, no defense, just straightforward declaration. But here's the thing that we need to realize. Listen, this is, this, this is not just a creative act by God. What we find in Genesis 1 is the revelation of the creative act of God. That's what we're seeing here. If you don't have Genesis 1.1, it doesn't make it any less true. 
we just don't know what happened and how it happened. But we do have a revelation. So in other words, God takes the initiative here, and what we're seeing, God, is God taking the initiative to do what? To reveal to us what He did in the beginning. That's what this is about. So let me go ahead and show my hand to you this morning, and I think you already know it, but I take Genesis 1 to be historical. That's the way God has revealed this to us. It's not written as poetry. It's written as Hebrew in Hebrew as just narrative prose. That's not to say there's no poetic structure to it. There is. But I do take this to be an historical account. Though it's obviously not an exhaustive account, but it, what actually, I take this as what, this is telling us what actually happened in the way that it happened. One commentator who interestingly, interestingly doesn't hold to uh, that more literal six-day view of creation, he acknowledges though that the, the plain way it's written supports that traditional view. And he says, there's no question that the Genesis account is written as history. Moses presents the creation story as what actually happened in the time-space world we experience. And that is the way every biblical author who looks back to it treats it. Now, he has a but after that. But I just say, he everybody, I think honestly, if you look at the account, this is the way it's written. We'll come back to that, but... Certainly, again, it's not meant to be any kind of exhaustive account of creation. It's one page. I mean, this, is, this isn't an HD, you know, three-dimensional video from multiple angles showing us every facet of the origins of the universe and the earth. That's not it. It's like a Polaroid shot from one angle and at a, quite, a, quite a distance. It, tell, it shows us what it shows is true, but it just doesn't show us everything. It's very short. It's not its intention. It doesn't show us everything in terms of how it happened, it, but, but it does tell us what happened and what it does say about how it happened is true. That's my point. So that said, I, I take the day, days of creation to be six literal 24-hour days, and I'll provide reasons for that in, in just a little bit. Now, having said that, listen, this is very important. I think it's very important to remember that the most important point of Genesis 1-2 is not the timetable of creation as much as it's the revelation of creation. And so, in other words, we need to be charitable with those who may see Genesis 1-2 a little bit differently than we do, or I do. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I don't think there's really any room for so-called theistic evolution or for denying the historical Adam or for trying to accommodate, you know, uh, Darwinian evolutionary perspectives or anything like that. We agree that, 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 that God is a God who creates. And He created the universe and the earth by divine fiat. We agree with that. But there does need to be charity with the, for those who disagree on particulars. And I know we have some of those disagreements even in this congregation. And, and there are godly, intelligent, theologically sound like-minded Christians who disagree on various aspects of the interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. People can affirm biblical inerrancy, have a high view of God, hold tenaciously to the script, to, to the gospel, and yet disagree on some of these matters. It's not to say the matters, these matters aren't, aren't important, and I'm going to 
spend some time showing you why I think they're very important. My point is we need charity, humility, uh, when we talk about these things. That showing charity doesn't mean lacking convictions on these things at all. It's just humbly recognizing we may not be right on every point. And it's, giving, it's being patient towards others and allowing room for them to grow just as we need to grow in our own understanding of the Scriptures. So, all that said, this morning I want to do a few things. Uh, I want us to do a few things as we, as we look at, back at Genesis 1 uh, another time. Uh, and this is, this is going to be a little more technical than usual. This is not the normal kind of just walking through the text sermon. And I have... I was really debating even whether to do a message like this, and I wasn't planning on it when we started the series, but the more I study and the more I read, I just I realized there are, there are so many voices and competing voices. I think we need to cut through some of the murkiness and at least be clear on, on the way I understand what's recorded in these early chapters of Genesis. I think it's important to deal with these issues at the outset, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. But Because they touch on more than Genesis 1. Uh, that, that what we're saying this morning, it, it deals with, again, issues like the, the historicity of Adam. Was Adam a real man or is it more of a concept? Um, the fall, the, the global worldwide flood, are those real events? Um, so it, 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 those are all connected into what we're going to say this morning. So the plan for the morning, I want to quickly, and, I, and I hope, hopefully quickly, survey... Some of the various interpretations of Genesis 1 and 2 that you'll come across if you read commentaries and if you hear messages on Genesis. So we're going to do a quick survey of some of those interpretations. Secondly, I want to explain why I think the traditional interpretation and the plain reading of the creation account is preferred. And then third, I want to talk about some implications in terms of how uh, the implications of how we interpret Genesis 1 and 2. So that's it. What are the options? Uh, why six days, and who cares? <laughs> and so I hope that I'm, I haven't lost you by the time we get to the who cares part. Maybe I should have started with that uh, as I'm looking at glazed eyes already. All right, so you with me? We good? All right, all right. What are the options? That's what we, let's do a quick survey of this. Last week, we, again, we quickly walked through Genesis 1, uh, 3, through the, through the whole chapter really, seeing God's creative work in in, in, in forming and filling the earth. The earth, after God created it, was formless and void, and so it was unin- and uninhabitable and uninhabited. And, and God, through those, that creative week, he's, he's forming and filling the earth, making it uh, habitable and, and, and inhabited. And so that's during, as I said, six literal consecutive days. That was the, the way we treated it last week. That has been the standard traditional interpretation of Genesis 1 for the vast majority of church history and predating church history in Jewish history. Augustine was one very rare and very early exception to that statement. Um, But he thought six days was way too long. And so he held to instantaneous creation. So but I just say there are exceptions to that rule, but most throughout history have held to uh, that traditional plain reading of, of Genesis 1. But other than Augustine and maybe one or two others uh, through the centuries, it's until the last 150 years or so, there have basically been no other options. There are no other recorded interpretations that we can find in, in writing anyway. 
So what changed? We're going to see a whole bunch of options in just a moment. Why, why are there so many choices now? Basically, modern science has changed that. As scientific study and thought began pointing uh, to a much older universe in Earth, most contemporary uh, calculations, they say 14.5 billion years for the universe, uh, some four, four plus year, billion years for uh, Earth. Um, but but all of, as, as, those, as the scientific study is pointing to an older universe in Earth, attempts were made to reconcile those claims with Genesis 1, it's a description of the creation of the world in six days and then the genealogies that are pointing even to a younger earth. And so how do we reconcile those, those two things? I'm not suggesting, listen, don't hear me when I say that, like I'm throwing rocks at people who hold to other views. I'm not suggesting that everyone today who disagrees with the, the more plain traditional reading of Genesis 1 is a slave to science and they, they're putting science above Scripture or something like that. That's not my point. I mean, some... Some do, but that's not what I'm saying that everybody does that. Many have a high regard for the Bible. They're, they're trying to deal with the text and, and answer the questions of the text and support their views with Scripture. But I'm only saying that all the alternate views to, uh, to, the, to this traditional rendering interpretation of Genesis, all of those did not originate until the last century when when the relationship between science and Genesis began to be really considered in depth. So you understand, I hope you understand what I'm saying. So what are, what are some of the other approaches to Genesis 1 that have come about in the last century and a half? Uh, one, they're not all created equal. So some of these you're going to hear, and we can quickly just push those aside um, because we, we do have a high regard for the Scriptures and, and what God has revealed and we see it that way. And so we're not, and, and others, you know, we could, we could spend more time uh, looking at, but we just don't have time and, uh, to, to go in depth in these. But I want to walk through some, some that you'll occasionally come across. The first one is the most common, one we can push aside, but it's, this, it's just a dismissive approach. Um, this is what some people, I would say most people in the world today, but even some professing Christians, they simply dismiss the Genesis account of creation. It's just, you just push it aside. Maybe because they, they simply don't believe that the Bible is God's Word. Uh, the Bible is just an ancient, man-made uh, religious book. That's kind of how most people in the world view the Bible. <coughs> and, and so again, you'll come across this often. Um, I, I hope that's not how you view the Bible. Uh, but I realize that, that there very well may be a few skeptics here today who believe that approach to Genesis 1. And I'm glad you're here, not so we can argue with one another or anything like that, but I, I pray that you'll just consider what we talk about this morning and, and weigh it. Second, another, another view, another option, is the revelatory day theory. This means that, that the six days in Genesis 1 are six days in which God successively revealed to Moses His work of creation. So, so the days in Genesis 1, they don't refer to the timing of the acts of creation, but, but to the timing of God's revelation to Moses about God's creation. So on day 1, God revealed to Moses that He made the light sometime in the past. That's the kind of thing. It's not a common view, but it is out there and you occasionally run into it. Third, the gap theory, which has nothing to do with a certain retailer of preppy clothes. That's not, that's not the gap theory. We talked about this one a little bit already. 
But the gap theory basically says there's a gap of time between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so the original creation of God, we see that in Genesis 1.1. I said Genesis 1 and 2, but verse uh, 1 and verse 2 of Genesis 1. So Genesis 1.1, there's the original creation of God. God made the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2, there's this subsequent catastrophe uh, in the world, and so the world's left in formlessness and void and and utter chaos. And then in verse 3, then this recreation begins. Um, And so according to this view, it was popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible in the last two centuries ago now. But the, 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 the... According to this view, the findings of modern science, and again, billions of years, they're squeezed in between verse 1 and verse 3 of Genesis 1. And so they're trying to accommodate that timetable. Another view, the local creation theory. Uh, This is similar to the gap theory in in that it it suggests that the original acts of creation there took place in Genesis 1-1, but but verse 2 doesn't describe some global uh, <laughs> catastrophe, but a regional catastrophe. And so what's, what, what's describing in verse 2 and following there, it's taking place in, a, in the ancient Near Eastern world, in that, in that region. So that devastation of verse 2 and the recreation that's described in verses 3 and following, it's again, it's taking place in that same local area. So most who hold to this view also would then go on to see the, the flood, not as being a global worldwide flood, but a regional Flood, But this is a view, again, you'll come across. Uh, next, the intermittent day theory. And this theory says that the days in Genesis 1, they are 24-hour days, but 24, hour, uh, 24 hours long, but there, there are these large gaps of time between the days. And so God made the light on day 1, then a bunch of time passed, maybe millions of years, and God separated the waters in another 24-hour day, and then millions more years pass, that kind of thing. So they, they also will concede that much of the creative activity of God it took place in those gaps of time, and so over, over many, many years, and tr- again, trying to accommodate uh, science and the calculations of dating. Another view is the day-age theory. This theory says that each day in Genesis 1-1 is actually a very long, unspecified period of time. And so the days don't correspond to our 24-hour days, but geologic ages. And so, so not just 24-hour long days. We'll talk about this in the, in the next part of the message, but the day-age theory usually appeals to the fact that the Hebrew word for day, which is yom, Y-O-M in English transliteration, it can be used in a, in a range of, with a range of meanings. And so it, can be, it refers sometimes to, a, to just a period of light. I mean, you see this in Genesis 1-5. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And so, sometimes day is used in Scripture just for the daylight hours. Uh, we need it, daylight. Um, another meaning of, of day, yom, is the period of, of light and darkness together. That's our 24-hour day, that cycle of evening and morning. And so, see an example of this in Scripture, Esther 4.16, outside of Genesis 1. But in Esther 4.16, uh, the Lord says, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And so you actually find both uses there. And so three days includes the nighttime and the daytime. Um, so that's another use of, of yom. And then the third use is a time of unspecified length 
that has just a common distinctive character. So we, we talk about the day of the Lord, Zephaniah 1.14 and many other places. The day of adversity, the day of vengeance. And so it's not about a 24-hour day, it's about a, it's about a period of time. And so the day-age theory obviously interprets Genesis 1 and that, that little word yom, day, in that third sense, a time of unspecified length. So it says day one, it's not talking about 24 hours, it's about a period of time, a geologic age. Another view, a couple more, hang with me. The framework view, also called the literary view or the framework hypothesis, big fancy name. But this, this view just says that the, the days in Genesis 1, they're constructed as a literary framework uh, to describe God's acts of creation. Uh, they, they shouldn't be read as showing any kind of successive uh, linear progression of events or some specific amount of measured time. It's simply a, a literary structure, not narrative, not history. It's just a, a, a literary device almost to to communicate a message. And so uh, that's that framework view. And in that one you do come across uh, fairly frequently. Another view is the analogical day theory. Two more. Analogical day theory. And that's a mouthful. But what we're saying is the days in Genesis are, are simply God's work days. They're analogous to our work days as human beings. And they, they appeal to Exodus 20. Uh, verses 9-11, the Ten Commandments, and so I'm going to appeal to this uh, same passage later. Um, but Exodus 20, verse 9, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the, the, this, this view, it claims that this analogy between God's work and and human work, it doesn't have to do with the length of the days, but just the character and the flavor of those days. So as we work in a maybe a literal 24-hour day or a daylight day, God, God has His work days too. But they, they go beyond the limits of, of our human uh, time. And so it could be millions, billions of years. Last view uh, is, is the religion-only theory. Just saying that the only purpose of Genesis 1 is just to teach us about God. Um, now, it certainly does do that. We've been making, laboring that point already in this series uh, uh, so far, and, and we'll continue to bang on that drum. Genesis is about God. It's revealing God to us. But this view says that it doesn't, it just doesn't supply any information that would be, um, would have any potential conflict with modern science because it's not, it's not the point. There are different versions of this view. Some say that the Bible in general, Genesis 1 in particular, it answers the, the what and the why questions, but not the how questions. Science answers that. And so since the Bible and science are answering different questions, there's really no conflict between... Uh, between science and scripture in any way, because they're just they're tre- they're doing different things, and so Genesis is most will kind of say it's just it's just poetically telling us who God is. God is, and He's amazing, and he, there's no one like Him, and that's all it's doing, and in just this kind of religious uh, language. Others stress that the relation of Genesis. Others stress the relation of Genesis 1 to the other, other stories of origins, the other myths produced 
in the ancient Near East and the other nations around Israel. And, and so because Genesis 1 bears similar marks to some of those uh, origin stories, they allege that it belongs in that same genre. It's an inspired version, but it's, it's still that same genre. So it's never, it was never intended to say anything about particular events in space and time, but only to give some kind of general theological religious statement about the nature of God and His relation to people. It's just a, it's more of a religious, um, poetic, uh, polemic against pagan mythologies. And so they treat it as that. All right. That's the quick survey. It didn't seem so quick, did it? Um, <laughs> I'm not going to walk through each of those alternative views, don't worry, of Genesis 1 and, and list the strengths and weaknesses. Again, some of those are obviously very weak and we can dismiss quickly, again, just because we, we hold to the Scriptures in high regard. Some would require more time to explain and to extract some good from bad and, and all of that. The most common alternative held by like-minded Christians, evangelicals, today is that analogical day theory. And so I'm just saying that that's the one you'll come across probably more often by people that you read and listen to and listen to their podcasts and their sermons. Yeah, that's the, the, a view held by many of the popular Christian pastors and speakers today, that God created the world in six days, which are His days, not literal 24-hour days, but just kind of His chunks of time. Um, one other word of warning before we go to the next question. Um, a theory that seems appealing at one point in time may later fall apart. <coughs> and so just keep that in mind. <coughs> Case in point is the gap theory. Um, it was very popular at one time and it looked very good. If we were alive at that time in a church like ours, we would have probably got our Schofield Reference Bible. It sounds, it sounds like it makes sense. Well, it, run in, it runs into all kinds of difficulties in the Hebrew language and with Hebrew grammar. And so, uh, you know, over time and not very long, it was quickly kind of dismissed. So I'm just saying, just keep that in mind. The, the, the latest theory that sounds so good and solves all the answers, it may quickly evaporate. And don't throw all your eggs in that basket. One other comment. Even for us who say God determines the meaning, the author determines the meaning, and we hold to the authority of the Bible, science should not be viewed as our enemy. We're going to talk more about this when we talk about man made in the image of God and, and, and our role in creation uh, but, but there are wonderful things that come from studying how God's world works. And we shouldn't be afraid of that or shy away from that. In fact, the Bible is what gives us a positive foundation for all sciences. And it tells us that, that of, of this God who created, sustains, governs all things in this orderly <coughs> way. And so His wise and consistent and orderly governance of the universe is the very basis for doing science. And, and it's why it works. So Christians, be good biologists and geologists and physicists. Uh, and if you're smarter than me, do all of those things. That's, that would be great. And so don't fear those things. But we must conclude, the Bible is infallible. Science is not. And true scientists will be the very first ones to affirm that second part of that statement. They, they will agree. Science is not, is not infallible. Also, scientists are human. We're, they're biased. They're consciously and unconsciously. The other, listen to this. This may be land on us. 
Bible interpreters are biased too. Um, and we're fallible. The problem's never with Scripture. The problem's always with us in seeing these things come together. All right, so that's a quick survey. Let's move on. Uh, second question, second movement this morning. Now we're getting back to the text. Why? Why six days? Why six consecutive, literal, 24-hour days? Why not one of those alternative interpretations? And some of you may hold to one of those alternative interpretations, so I'm not saying we all collectively say, but I, 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 this is my position. This is, I, I think, most of us here. Why, why would we hold to that uh, view of six days? Why hold to a view that is the butt of so many jokes today? <laughs> and it is. If you, haven't, if you don't hear them, you're just not around the right people. Um, why cling to an interpretation of Genesis 1 that's so out of sync with modern scientific thought, even in, in evangelicalism? I mean, there's commentaries and sermons that I've listened to and studying, and I mean, they, they, they just let us have it when it comes to uh, holding to a literal six-day view of creation. Aren't six-day creationists, um, which is sort of a label of mockery today by many, Aren't they basically comparable to kind of the flat earthers? Isn't it sort of the same thing? I'm not being sarcastic, but is that, isn't it just applying a hyper-literal reading to Genesis 1? Or, or are we like the Roman Catholics of old who after science had shown that the earth actually revolves around the sun, but the Roman Catholics said, no, 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 no. The sun is, is, is the... Is, is movement. Earth is fixed. The sun rotates around us. The sun rises and sun sets. And, and so that's what Scriptures say. Is six-day creation that same kind of thing? Holding to that. This hyper-literal reading. Not allowing for that kind of... Um, uh, those literary devices and poetic language. Well, obviously... I'm just, I just want you to be prepared for the kinds of comments and the kind of stuff that is written out there because you hear these things, and, I, and, and I'm not dissuaded. There is solid evidence for a literal chronology of Genesis 1. Um, and I'm not at all trying to imply that there's not any good evidence for other views. That's not my point. And I'm not suggesting that there are no challenges or difficulties to, by taking a traditional view. But I do think the greater weight of textual contextual and theological support is with the more plain reading of Genesis 1. So I'm not going to start throwing up you know, images and graphics. and I'm not going to argue this from a scientific perspective, but from a scriptural, biblical perspective. And I think the number of challenges and difficulties are fewer and are less significant by taking uh, that, that plain meaning of Genesis 1. Alright, so why? What kind of solid evidence is there for a literal chronology of creation? A few reasons. I mean, these are not... So if you're taking notes, I'm sorry. These are, I've got a lot of slides today, and uh, they're kind of wordy. I didn't work at paring them down and making them cute. Um, one, the genre of Genesis 1 is straightforward historical prose narrative, not poetry. Again, I know it's a mouth. That's a lot to scribble out for the kids that are trying to keep up with the words on the screen. Um, however elaborate the construction may be, this is what we find in Genesis 1. It's, its basic structure is the same as the other 49 chapters of Genesis. It is. 
It's history, and it should be read as a, as a record of authentic events. Virtually all Hebrew scholars affirm this to be true. If they're going to take another view, they, they do it not based upon the, the type of literature that, that, that Genesis 1 is. One commentator, Derek Kidner, who's a brilliant commentator in Old Testament, his commentary on the Psalms is the best there is, and, and he's good on Genesis in a lot of ways. He does not hold to a, a literal six-day creation, but he says, the author shows no consciousness of speaking otherwise than literally. He has to concede that because he understands the Hebrew language. Another commentator says, if the creation history is an allegory, then the narrative concerning the fall and everything further that follows can also be allegory. And so we're getting into my last point, but you see the consequence of taking this as anything other than history. All right, second reason. Why six days? The grammar. All right, now I'm really losing you. I mean, I talk to my kids about grammar, and it's like lights out. So, uh, so I'm not diagramming sentences here, but the grammar matters. The grammar of Scripture matters. This is our view of of, of uh, inspiration of the Bible. All Scripture is inspired by God. The, the grammar of Genesis 1 indicates a sequence of events where this grammatical construction is found, uh, wherever this grammatical construction is found in the Old Testament. I want to be too technical here, but there's a Hebrew construction, again, that, that clearly points to a plain reading and understanding of Genesis 1. <coughs> it's, it's called the, the Vav, or the, there's different pronunciations of this Hebrew letter. It's the... Uh, Vav or wow construction. It, it's a little, this little particle that you put on the front of verb. It's and, basically. So you see this in Genesis 1, and plus a verb. Um, and it's always used in the Old Testament to show sequential events. I mean, we use it the same way. So I'm, I went to the store yesterday, and then I went and got a bite to eat for lunch, and then I went and picked up my kids from school. I'm showing a succession of events in my day. And plus a verb. Just the plain use of that. Everywhere in the Old Testament that construction is found in Hebrew. That's what it's describing. And that's what's used here in Genesis 1. So the grammar supports it. Third, the number of the creation days identifies them as normal 24-hour days. Now, you quote another Reformed uh, 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 theologian here talking, uh, Joseph Pippa, modern contemporary theologian. He says, the use of day with the ordinal number demands a sequential reading. When an ordinal number is used with yom, day in Hebrew, not one example of non-sequence can be found. So the fact that Genesis 1, it numbers the days as first, second, third, and so on, it gives the normal impression of ordinary days. That's the plain reading. Fourth, the context of the days is marked off by the words evening and morning. <coughs> and then let me quote another commentary. If the days of creation are regulated by the recurring interchange of light and darkness, they must be regarded not as periods of time of incalculable duration, or years, or thousands of years, or millions of years, but as simple, as simple earthly days. Uh, critics answer that morning light requires sun, and sun's not made until day four. But listen, we don't deny the special providence uh, that is involved throughout these supernatural creation events. It's all crazy. I mean, it's all supernatural. So, so God's not got His hands tied behind His back by that statement. The reality is that God's revelation of creation, the way it's revealed to us, it's presented as these normal 24-hour day periods. And then last, fifth, 
when the rest of the Bible looks back on Genesis, on the Gen- excuse me, on the Genesis creation story, it always regards the events as historically literal. This is, the, to me, one of the most compelling. Most telling is the language of the fourth commandment. And I realize this passage is used um, by some to argue for a different position, but in Exodus 20, verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And the logic is we must do as God Himself did. Um, so we are to work for six literal days, each week, resting on the seventh, to imitate what God did in the original days of creation. You, Psalm 33, verse 6. I mean, we, there's so many. We could spend weeks looking at passages, the way Genesis is used, and even the creation account is used throughout Scripture. And it's always affirmed to be literally true. It's not, it's not ever spoken of as if it's allegory or some, in some other way. But Psalm 33, 6 corroborates the claim of Genesis 1. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. You go to the New Testament. We've looked at, uh, at uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where Paul uh, points out that in the beginning God said, Let shine, light shine out of darkness. He said that, and it happened. And that's, that's the, the basis for how he sees the gospel coming into our hearts as God sovereignly in his grace uh, shines light into our hearts. But he, he's affirming the historicity of that, of that reality. Matthew 19.4, Jesus speaks of Adam and Eve as, as actual historical persons. Paul does the same thing. So, armed with that evidence, and I don't mean to use warfare language like we're ready to shoot people or something like that, but... The, the, the historical genre of Genesis 1, the, the grammar, the narrative grammar of Genesis 1, the numbering of the days, the context of evening and morning, uh, the, together with the agreement of the rest of Scripture, um, we can be confident in, the, in reading the days of Genesis 1 as literal 24-hour periods. And so instructed by God's Word in that way, we, we can stand humbly but confidently before oh, contrary theories of science that that come forward, and, and contrary interpretations of Genesis even in evangelicalism. Now one question that comes up, and we're not going to run this down, but it, and it relates to this, is to the, to the age of the earth, the age of the universe. How do we answer science claim that seems, apparently seems valid, valid in terms of what we see in the world around us, that the universe is billions of years old rather than maybe thousands of years uh, as Scripture would seem to indicate with genealogies and such. I can't give any thorough treatment to this, and old earth, new, young earth, all of that. There are no dates given in Genesis 1, and so we've got to be honest about that. But, but something to consider is, is God did create a mature creation. I mean, that's plain. As we looked at this last week, He, he, he created with consistent, coherent appearance of age. He didn't create tiny baby Adam. He created Adam, the man. And so he's one day old and he's got a full beard. I don't know if he had a full beard, but I like to picture him with the beard. And um, maybe he was bald already. I don't know. Uh, but uh, we'll go with that. Um, he, he didn't create seeds or seedling. He created trees and plants and grass. And maybe Maybe the trees had rings that looked like they were old. I don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe the first ones didn't. He didn't create eggs. He created chickens who probably had eggs, you know, already in the chute, ready to come out. 
Uh, so did he curate the chicken or the egg? Which came first? Probably both came at the same time. I don't know. Again, that's speculation. I'm not trying to sidetrack us here. There's no reason then that God couldn't have created the whole universe with the appearance of age. Including light that's already in motion. And so the, that we talk about millions. We can measure light and the speed of light. And so we're not, we're not ignoring those realities. And so things start millions of light years away. How do we explain that? And from, from distant stars. If so, again, may, maybe God created the appearance of that. He's, he's already bridged that gap. That if so, the age estimates of modern science, they should simply show the apparent, apparent age of the universe and the earth. And so again, I'm not, I don't know. I, I can't answer all those questions. I don't I'm going to try to. I know there are people that give a lot of thought to this, and that's great. I, I'm aware that that kind of reasoning isn't going to convince any skeptic if they, if they already don't believe. But, and so don't think that you're going to take that and go win some argument on and convince somebody of a young earth or something like that. But don't but also don't be spooked by the billions of years talk and feel like you've got a you got a cow to to that. That's that's what I want it to be useful for you. One one other thinking thing to keep in mind before we move to the last question. We 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 are having to look at creation through some massive barriers. A couple of them. One, barrier number one, I've got to be quick here, the flood. We are looking back. You, you don't have to be a brilliant scholar or scientist to, to read Genesis 6-9 to and tell that if that's true, and it is, if that's true, then something radically changed about the way the world works but from before the time of Noah to today and after the time of Noah. Something changed radically. So it would be foolish to read the post-Noah world into the pre-Noah world. That's my point. There are things that are very different about the way the world prior to Noah's flood worked and today. There's a discussion on uniformitarianism. You can talk to Howard about this and he will be glad to fill you in. So, but it's really, it is important because we, we want to look back and evaluate everything in the past based upon the way things are today. You cannot do that with a biblical understanding of, of these events. There's another barrier that, we, that, that causes us to struggle to understand the that, that original created world, is the fall. Massive implications. None of us can take off our glasses of fallen human humanity and, and study Genesis 1. We can't do it. And so we, we all study Genesis 1 on this side of the fall. And, and we should not under, underestimate the impact of the fall on us trying to understand an unfallen world. We have no concept for an unfallen world. And, and, and it's ultimately impossible for a fallen person to take into account and comprehensively, uh, to take, in, take in accurately and comprehensively the reality of the unfallen world. So we, we have that massive barrier uh, that, that, that works against us. All of that to say, though, I think in light of current fads and theories, we are better to take this passage of face value. Um, that's the case I'm trying to make. I think this, I'm confident that this is how Israel first heard it and understood it and believed it. Again, they're not asking about Adam's belly button or, or uh, tree rings. That's, that was not the discussion and that's not where we need to spiral. They're saying, is, this, is our God the real God? 
Is He the real God? And as as God revealed to Moses the what He did in the beginning, I don't think they understood it any other way than as that's what happened. A plain, plain revealed language. I think this is how Moses intends for us to believe it today. Now the third question, the moments we have remaining, why does it matter? Uh, who cares? <laughs> why? Why does it? Does any of this have any relevance to us in doctrine or practice? Why not just throw a dart at the dartboard and say, "I'll take that view, please." <coughs> That's going to be my view. <coughs> why does this have? Why does this matter? You're going to have to pause for a water break, but it's better than the gross stuff that happened last week. So, uh, if you were here and if you were listening on the recording, I'm sorry. Hopefully, Avery edited that. Um, all right, so I th- I'm just going to give you some theological reasons that are are worth considering. Why why does it matter? Um, again, these are kind of wordy, but I um, take note of them. One, why it matters? God's goodness must be reflected in the original creation. His goodness. That's what we see in Genesis one. God pronounces His original creation is good, very good. It's this world of beauty, plenty, and without corruption and death, Romans 8.21 tells us. And so you have this, this, this picture of this artistically designed, beautiful world, and it only fits within the chronology of, of six-day creation. If you, if you adopt the kind of common chronology of, of the day of, of today, um, you, you have to accept that the earth was absent from the universe for billions of years, <clears throat> and the earth slowly formed through you know, billions of years of uninhabitable environments. Um, long before the appearance of Adam and Eve, trillions of living creatures experienced mass death and, death and mass dis- extinction. Um, and so I realize, you may be saying, who cares? I'm not interested in those, those kind of details. But anyone who chooses to accept an alternate interpretation implicitly accepts all of the historical events that go with that interpretation. And so you may not say, no, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying logically there are other, there are other things that you're accepting if you choose an alternate, alternate view. It's a long history filled with lifelessness, lifelessness and death, not the goodness of God that is what we find recorded in Genesis 1. Second, Adam's sin resulted in universal corruption and death. According to a modern understanding of dating and origins, corruption and death have always been part of the universe or since creatures existed. So this can be seen in the fossil record, fossil record which they point to, and again, they're saying there's 540 million years of animal suffering and death. That's what they point to. It provides, and that shows a snapshot of a, a world full of thorns and thistles. Um, but, but again, in this view, Adam's sin could not have been the ultimate cause of universal corruption because it predates man. As a historical event, his disobedience occurred long after corruption was present. But according to six-day creation, Adam's sin precedes God's curse on creation. The suffering and death of animals came as a result of Adam's disobedience that wasn't prior to it. Again, you're just seeing some theological implications of, of moving away from this. Thorns and thistles are part of the curse. They're not before it. This is what, again, Paul affirms in Romans 8.21. And it's what Reformation theology has always affirmed until 
more recent years. Adam was given dominion over the entire creation at the beginning. When he sinned, then the entire creation was subjected to corruption as a consequence of its unique relationship to him. We're going to see that in a few weeks or months or whatever. But third, you don't doubt you doubt me, JK. I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> Third, the pattern of creation, fall, redemption, it culminates in new creation. Um, Again, this is a theological implication. If the universe contained death and corruption that wasn't the result of Adam's sin, what does that mean for Jesus' redemption of both man and creation? (coughs) So it's only the chronology of six-day creation that provides the historical framework for this pattern to really have meaning. If the original creation was not good, or if the fall did not transform the creation into something evil, then what is the real nature of our redemption? I know that's a that's a there's a lot to take in there, and I'm not able to elaborate because of time. And 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 what's the potential of the new creation? And so for the bookends of creation and new creation to to uh, to match in some way, they must they must mirror each other. That's, that's really only possible with six-day creation. Fourth, and we've already said much about this in, in the previous point, but the Scripture must be used to interpret Scripture. That, that any interpretation you're going to, to claim of Genesis 1, it's got to be able to, it's got to stay intact as it passes through the entirety of the Bible. And, and, and this is what we see with six-day creation. It's affirmed throughout the entire entirety of Scripture. Whether it's Moses connecting creation week to a normal week in the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, or Isaiah affirming that God created man at the same time He created the heavens and the earth, not millions of years in between, or billions of years, or Jesus explaining the global destruction of the flood in light of His second coming, or Luke tracing the history of the world through a single genealogy, or Paul relating the work of Adam to the work of Christ, or Peter showing the relationship between the creation, the global flood, and judgment to come. There's only one historical sequence that consistently fits, and that's, again, six-day creation. Fifth, and finally, essential doctrines are related to history. This is, to me, so important. Um, Paul establishes this in the New Testament in, and this necessary connection between the real space-time events of history and Christian doctrine in 1 Corinthians 15. The, the real death, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the bedrock of the Gospel. We can't spiritualize those, those uh, stories and, and come out on the other side with the same Gospel. Doesn't work that that essential doctrines are related and connected inseparably from to history. This is how God has revealed Himself in 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 in, in actual space time history. Peter does the same thing in Second Peter three with creation, the flood, and final judgments. And so it's it's only within the the, the literal framework of of six day creation that all these events cohere to the fabric of time. That's that's what we see. For instance, if the if the thick fossil-bearing rock layers are the result of the global flood, they are a physical reminder of God's judgment on the earth in the past, as well as the promise of future judgment. 
Peter says. If, however, you, you adopt a conventional chronology that's common today, those huge rock layers are just a testimony to millions and millions of years. That's it. God's judgment is erased from the earth. And, and perhaps it's overlooked as we think about the future. If it didn't really happen back then, why, why would we be say and proclaim that the Lord is going to come to judge the living and the dead? How can we be certain if it didn't really happen back then? So the very kinds of arguments used by Christians to, uh, uh, to, to discount the historicity of Genesis 1, they're the same type that are used by unbelievers to allegorize the Gospels. And so the Gospel of John, for instance, we walk through that together. You have, you have this really precise literary structuring and beautiful language and and obviously John's got a, a point that he's making and he's ordering his, his, his gospel account to, to drive this point home and he's using literary devices to do that. And there are these dramatic events and, and there are these miraculous claims and events and it concludes in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ which is ridiculed today by uh, science. We, we, does that mean that John's gospel account is not literally true? I hope you don't affirm that. And if it's not history, but a mere literary structure, what is left of the gospel? Again, I'm not saying that if, if you, you struggle in Genesis 1, you've denied the gospel. That's not it at all. But I, I'm, just, I'm just showing you the events of history, they do matter in terms of our theology and our doctrine. The distinctive feature of the Christian faith is that its doctrines stem from historical events that actually happen. And this is why we come and we remember the Lord's table uh, regularly, we're remembering this is an actual body that was broken. This is blood that was shed for us. We're, we're saying this happened in time and space and history. It's this, this feature is true of the creation account as well as the cross of Christ. That's my point. Moreover, if Christians accept a, a version of origins that's at, uh, that, that is at odds with Genesis 1 and the plain meaning, we, we have not made an intellectually wise compromise but we've actually recast the big story uh, of the entire Bible. Without Genesis 1, there's no literal Adam and Eve. I mean, we can, that's not a big leap. Without our first parents, there's no fall into sin as the great problem, greatest problem in life. In that case, the mission ascribed to Jesus in dying for our forgiveness, it bears... Um, bears no meaning and little relevance to a world that is simply about something else. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he sums it up this way as he preached through Genesis. He says, I have no gospel unless Genesis is history. The Bible's message of creation, fall, redemption, it starts with the historical account of creation and that is indispensable. According to the New Testament, the story of Jesus begins in Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the, at the Bible's end, uh, Jesus wrapped up all history. This is how it ends, saying, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, am alive forevermore. Revelation 1, 17-18. There are, these are historical claims revealed in God's Word to us which we cling to and proclaim to the world. We trust in Christ alone, brothers and sisters, who 
through the power by which He spoke all things into existence in, in the days of creation, he's, he's also spoken the new birth into our hearts. And as irreversible as creation was, so is, is the new birth. This is why we are saved. This is why we have assurance that the, the power of God uh, manifest in the work of Christ is, is so effective and to us. This is, this is the message we cling to. And this is the message we preach. That the God who, who said, let light shine out of darkness, He can shine into your hearts today if you, if you are walking in darkness. If you are here and, 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 and you, you are, this, this is foreign to you, this thought of, of, of Jesus Christ and forgiveness and, 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 and life and, and, and this God who's, this one God who's over all, who made all and sustains all. And, 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 and you look at your life though and, you, and you're, you're still walking in darkness. Sin, you have no hope beyond you know, what's, what you've got today and what you can do to scrape by. No hope for eternity. If you're in darkness, the, 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 power of the, the, the power of the gospel is available to you today. You can cry out to Him and trust Christ and light can shine in and you can know life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for uh, this good news that is ours. Thank You that, that the, our faith is not, is not, does not rest upon uh, loose uh, theories or man-made uh, myths, but there is objective truth, history, and I pray for every believer here today, Father, that you would you would give us uh, fresh um, assurance of our salvation, even as we consider um, the way the New Testament looks back on creation and sees this certainty of our salvation because of the certainty of what you did in creation. And for those that may be here today without Christ, Father, I pray uh, that, that all that we've talked about, and uh, I know it's, it's, some of it's probably been not clear, and, but I pray that through, through all of that, Father, You, by Your Spirit, would, uh, would be shining light into darkened hearts today, Father, calling some out of darkness into Your marvelous light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.